Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com slash CSB1. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Several years ago, the psychologist Mitch Prinstein reconstructed a famous experiment. He and his colleagues asked a few classrooms of three-year-olds, who do you like most in your class? Who do you like least? Some kids emerged as clearly well-liked. You can think of these as like the popular three-year-olds. Some were not as well-liked. Then Princeton invited one child from each different classroom, so these kids did not really know each other, they had not played together, to spend time interacting. In about half an hour, the popular kids emerged as popular, and the unpopular kids emerged as unpopular. Now remember, a half hour before, these kids had never played together. They had no idea who was normally the popular kid in preschool. But Princeton discovered there was no hiding reality. And that reality may follow you well beyond three, like to 33 or 63. Mitch Princeton is the author of Popular, The Power of Likeability in a Status-Obsessed World. Mitch, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So on that experiment that I just described, why do you think it was that kids knew so quickly, like who were the popular kids and who were the not-so-popular kids? Oh, great question. Yeah, it was amazing. It it happened so fast. You can just see those unpopular kids immediately being shunned within a matter of minutes. And prior research has said that within three hours, you can really see all of those social positions instantiated all over again. And it's because unless you know how to change it, the behaviors you engage in um, that make you unpopular in one setting will make you unpopular again all over. Things like being aggressive or mm-hmm. being too self-focused. Um, where the populars, it's remarkable. They're not super extroverted. They're not the obvious kind of uh, charismatic leaders. They're kind of quiet. They have a good ability to read the group and kind of get everyone interested in what they're interested in by slowly, surreptitiously kind of guiding them in this non-dominant way. They're very, very skilled and clever. Mm. So does that indicate to you, because we started talking about three-year-olds. I think when people think about popularity, they think about, you know, the person who is the homecoming queen or whatever. They think about mm-hmm. 17-year-olds. But we started talking about three-year-olds and how so quickly popularity amongst three-year-olds, you know, merged right away. I wonder then, is popularity something that in some ways is innate or genetic? Because I think I would think of popularity as being related to how you look or maybe, you know, maybe wealthier people are more popular. But like three-year-olds, they have no idea about any of those things. So Mm -hmm. does that say to you that something about popularity is just something you're born with? Yeah. I mean, there there are definitely some things that we are born with or we do get from our parents that seem to be important. But – there's also a ton of this that is based on how our parents raised us. And not just at three, but all the way until we leave home. Parents have a remarkably important influence on 
how much um, their kids are really well liked or how they have other forms of popularity too. You know, there was one really interesting study that was done where they asked moms to talk about their memories of their own experiences when they were young. I was going to ask if popular parents have popular kids. Yeah, and that's exactly what they were looking for is whether the popular moms had popular kids and mm-hmm. so on. And they, they actually found there were three groups of moms. There were popular moms. There were moms who had negative memories. But then there was a third group that had more anxiety about what happened to them when they were growing up. Well, of course, their kids did almost as you would expect. The popular moms had popular kids. The moms with negative memories had negative experiences. Uh, Their kids did. But those anxious moms, their kids did great. And the reason why was because those moms were so anxious about what happened to them growing up that they engaged in all kinds of behaviors to make sure that their kids did not suffer the same fate. And it turns out that what those moms did, it worked. And their kids ended up being popular. Okay, what'd they do? So a few things. One, you got to bring up your kids in an environment where they're not exposed to tons of aggression. And sometimes that's not just physical aggression, of course, but hostility or depression or kind of concerns about getting one's way. That's a number one ticket to rejection is if Mm. a kid Mm. believes that aggression is the way to interact with others. But a lot of it was way more subtle than that. It was... Not whether moms played with their kids, but if they use those opportunities while they play to teach them how to think about how to share, how to solve Mm -hmm. conflicts, how to develop skills um, inviting folks into new games. Lots of little skills. I talk about a bunch of them in the book that slowly scaffolds for kids exactly how to develop the kinds of likable traits that we later think were really all genetic, but they're not. They're really very much taught. Hmm. This is the nature or nurture thing where it's hard to tell whether the person has passed on the behavior or the gene. Yeah. And that's why I I love this one particular study that shows that those anxious moms who did not have it for themselves, they were able to teach it for their kids because it really gives hope to all of those people who feel like, I don't want my kids to suffer what I did, you know, and is there anything I can still do about it? And the answer is absolutely yes. Hmm. Now, it turns out and I found this really interesting and absolutely true in my experience, that there, you know, there's not just one kind of popular person. There are two kinds of popular people. There are popular people who are popular because everybody likes them. And I can think of people in my life who I've met who are exactly like that. Everybody likes them. And you don't even really resent them for the fact that everybody likes them generally. Mm -hmm. But there are also people who are very popular, but not that many people like them. They're just very high status people and somehow they climbed up the rungs of status but sometimes they seem kind of mean while doing it like they stepped on other people to get there but it doesn't take away the fact that they are indeed high status and almost everybody in that community recognizes that to be so you want to talk about those two kinds yeah no you you described it perfectly and what's interesting to me is that one of those types of popularity starts at age three, and that's who's really very well liked. Mm-hmm. The other one doesn't become like a thing until adolescence. And there's yeah. a reason why that our brains develop to to make us care about that kind. The thing that's really interesting to me is that it used to be that after we, we grew out of adolescence, we would all go back to caring about likability. And that status form of popularity became less and less important. Well, starting about 30 years ago, the world changed. And now we are all stuck in this kind of permanent adolescence where (laughs) 
we still care about status like we did when we were teenagers more than we used to. Social media and reality TV and lots of other factors have changed our culture really, really dramatically. And those two different kinds of popularity persist for the rest of our lives. It feels like a big claim to say the world changed 30 years ago. Um, So (laughs) because, you know, we are who we are, like all these, you know, the raw stuff inside us has been what it's been uh, for a long, long time, for many thousands of years. So did something really change 30 years ago? Are we pressing different buttons? Explain that to me about what changed 30 years ago. Yeah, there's a bunch of different theories that have talked about why that might be. I mean, some really say that it was having to do with the media and the way that our news cycle changed and started making more opportunities for regular people to suddenly become the headlines. And over time, we saw people being famous just for being famous and not because of anything they did or or achieved. And it changed our relationship with popularity. Some say that it was the internet or reality TV that kind of suddenly made us all want that 15 minutes for ourselves. But we have proof that this has changed. You know, there was a really interesting study done by a professor at Cornell who examined the diaries of people back in the 1900s and Hmm. also more recently. And she found that young women and adolescent girls would used to write about really wanting to connect with their community and do what was best for the, the whole and the society and collective. And that's what people used to care about. It's not just Uh, teenage girls who would write that. But I think we all knew that that's what society was more about back then. That's not what people write in their diaries now, it turns Mm. out, as you can imagine. Everyone wants to be the most famous, the most beautiful, to have the most attention and money. And this is a very different kind of popularity. And it's not what we used to value as a culture. And have people followed both the folks who are popular because of just this tremendous likability on all sides and the folks who are high status, not because they're nice, but because they just they're just high status for some reason or another past high school. Like what happens to these people? Do those people carry on their high status or their likability into whatever job they end up doing? Yeah, there has been research following them up over time and the likable people and the high status people completely opposite outcomes. Those high status people do continue to be social climbers. You know, they might be the bosses. They mm-hmm, might be the mm-hmm. the envied person in their community, but studies show that they end up having relationship problems. They're more likely to have addictions. They have more anxiety, more depression. They appear on the outside to have high status, but whether they're celebrities or CEOs or government officials, there are a lot of interviews, even in the book that I talk about, that describe exactly why they are miserable. Those really likable people, it's incredible how many benefits they have. Even 40 years later, they make more money, they're happier, they have better marriages, and they actually end up living longer. Believe it or not, they have better health that has been determined to be because of their likability. Huh. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Mitch Prinstein, author of the book Popular, The Power of Likeability in a Status-Obsessed World. He's also a professor of psychology at the University of North Carolina. Is there a difference between popularity between the sexes? Do boys and girls play this out differently? Or, you know, the classic like cheerleader and football star, are they pretty much reading from the same book in terms of popularity? Yeah, there are there are some differences. That distinction between likability and status, turns out that boys have an easier time being both, 
Because that, that seems like the ideal thing, mm, right? Why right. not have all the high status but also be someone that people like? And it seems that's easier for boys. For girls, the relationship between being likable and status is pretty much zero. So in other words, about half of those girls um, and young women who have high status are disliked. In fact, they are very much hated by all of their peers. Mm. And that's a big difference and it's important because – it changes the ways that people are aggressive uh, among females, and it changes the ways that females feel that they can ascend the status hierarchy as adults. There's kind of a, a template that they experienced in adolescence telling them that if you want to be high status, there's not going to be any room to be likable. And that's not true. So it's a really unfortunate message that some young women have gotten. Have you looked at other cultures and, like, if you are popular in America, you know, if you're popular in St. Louis, are you also going to be popular in uh, Winnipeg? Like, are you also going to be popular in Rio? I mean, does this translate? Are popular people just plain popular or it's dependent on different cultures? Yeah. You know, it does depend on cultures. When it comes to likability, there's a little bit more similarity across cultures, but Status is something that's maybe more of a type of popularity in Western cultures. And when we did a study looking at adolescents in New England and compared them to adolescents the exact same age, the exact same time, we asked the exact same questions in China, we found that the more aggressive you were, the more status popularity you got over time in America. And in China, the exact opposite. The more aggressive mm. you were, the lower you went in popularity. Explain to me what you mean by aggressive. So the kind of aggression that we usually measure is comes in two flavors. One is, of course, kind of hitting, kicking, calling names. and okay. uh, But the second is kind of that mean girl's aggression. It's uh-huh. excluding folks or mm-hmm. giving them the silent treatment or gossiping about them. And both of them are really relevant across different cultures, and they both have this different relationship with popularity across cultures, too. Okay, so that kind of aggression, it's going to get you places in New England, not so much in China. <laughs> yeah, okay. it's going to get you places in the short term in New England. You're going to have a long-term sad outcome, perhaps, but it does get you higher status, unfortunately, um, as a teenager. So if um, high school is a pyramid and there's not a lot of people who are able to fit at the top, um, and we can all think of like who the popular people were in high school, why has our species evolved to create a situation in which most people are not at the top and most people don't feel great about that? And that seems (laughs) like there's some sort of flaw in that evolutionary design. Yeah, there is. There is because, (laughs) you know— This made a whole lot more sense when they gave out food and mating partners to the people at the top and everyone else was became extinct. But we don't live in that society anymore. Mm -hmm. Even those at the lowest, you know, uh, positions on that pyramid um, in most civilized countries can still find mating partners and food. So we don't need the system that was built in our brains 60,000 years ago anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we evolve far too slowly to get rid of it, um, to reflect our modern needs and conveniences. So, yeah, we're kind of walking around stuck with a system that we don't need anymore. But what was the advantage to it even 60,000 years ago? Because you didn't want just a few people to be able to mate. Didn't you want everybody to? I mean, if you ideally, you didn't want 90 percent of people to die off because of lack of food. So, yeah, it's a great question. So we now can still see this in other species. The way that it works is your social interactions are 
regulated to people close to you on the hierarchy. So it actually creates order and it limits aggression. So if everyone was vying to be the most popular and there was no big continuum, everyone would be aggressive with everybody. Everyone would Mm. think they could interact with everyone equally. But that popularity hierarchy actually creates kind of an organizational system that you see with chimpanzees and even sharks uh, in a lot of species. Again, we don't need that system as modern-day humans so much anymore. Um, But we're kind of stuck with it because that's the way that we've been programmed and evolved. And it plays out in high school more than at any other time because that's the point at which our brains turn on to care about that kind of hierarchical form of popularity. Mitch Prinstein is a professor of psychology and the director of clinical psychology at the University of North Carolina. He's also the author of Popular, The Power of Likeability in a Status-Obsessed World. Mitch, thank you so much. This was fascinating. Thank you so much. One more thing here that Princeton mentioned to me that I thought was really interesting. A powerful aspect of popularity is that it has a snowball effect. So popular people get better at popularity with practice. In the same way that basketball players get better at basketball with practice or writers get better by writing. And those who aren't popular, they are not invited to the same number of get-togethers. So they don't get a chance to work their popularity muscles. While everyone else is developing new skills, they're lagging behind and playing catch-up. And what's interesting is this doesn't just affect what it's like when you're a kid or a teenager, but that kind of pattern continues to play out in every corporation and every relationship as an adult. It's the same pattern over and over again. You can find more on Princeton's investigation of popularity at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org.